Yeah, amen. Good morning to you again. Great to have you with us. I'm Craig, and it's my privilege to turn you today to a passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. If you need a copy of the Scriptures because you'd like to follow along as we work through this story, all you need to do is to raise your hands in the air, and our ushers will be delighted to loan you a copy of the Scriptures as we look at what is a unique passage in the New Testament. Now, as the ushers are distributing those, as you're turning there, let me just recap where we've got to so far in this series. What we've said in, in the first two weeks is essentially that Jesus' interaction with the holy places, the temple and the synagogues, reveals two things. Firstly, his passion for hurting people, and secondly, his vision for the church. Secondly, we've said that the Jewish synagogue was actually a, a kind of prototype for the church. It had an emphasis on teaching, on fellowship, on discipline. Jews had learned to worship anywhere as the result of the exile. And so after, especially the destruction of the temple in AD 70, we actually see the synagogue and the pattern for it becoming really the prototype for what the early church practiced. And thirdly, we said that the ministry that Jesus had in between those holy places actually led to conflict within the holy places. Because many of, who, many of the people who Jesus met with in between the synagogue visits actually followed him into the synagogue and this brought a conflict because these people didn't know how to behave. They didn't know what to do. They weren't following all of the practices in the way that these strict Jews would have done it. And this led to the conflict and this conflict would ultimately lead to them wanting Jesus dead. He was changing. He was reforming too much for their liking. Fourth, Jesus is basically reforming Israel. This is Brad's message last week. He chose 12 disciples. Some of those disciples were actually outsiders to the religious community. They may have had a religious background like Levi, but they were actually outsiders. Another unique factor here is back in the day, it would have been typical for a would-be disciple to approach a rabbi and say, can I be one of your disciples? But what we see Jesus doing is reversing this. He actually goes out and seeks those people that would be a part of the reformation that God would want to do. And finally here, we we recognize that all of this led to Jesus dying. And Jesus died not because they did not understand him, but because they understood him only too well. He was offering outsiders, those people far from God, the means of access to God that bypassed the religious institutions and actually had its means simply through him. That was, again, reforming so much that they wanted Jesus to die. So with all of that background, what I want us to do is I want us to look, look at Luke chapter 8, at this story, and it's a, 
An interesting story because what we have here is the only interwoven miracle in the Gospels. It's in Mark chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 8. It is an interwoven miracle. That means that there are two miracle stories woven into one narrative. Many of us are familiar with the story of the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. But that miracle story is woven into the story of Jesus healing Jairus' daughter. Jairus, as we'll discover, is a synagogue leader. And what many of us miss is the heart of the issue here is that Jesus is putting Jairus on the spot. He is pitting Jairus' philosophical position as a leader of the synagogue, and remember the Pharisaic movement developed out of the synagogue, he's pitting Jairus' philosophy against his need for Jesus to heal his daughter by placing Jesus in a compromising situation by being touched by a woman with the issue of blood. And if there's one thing I want you to take home today, it's this, this word, Jesus not only has the power to bear our sin, he also has the ability to carry our dirt. So many people come into church week after week with a sense of shame. And we, we get the point that through the cross, Jesus was able to, to bear the weight of our sin but subconsciously, there is a disconnect between the Jesus who bears our sin and the shame that we feel because of what we battle with. And what we discover here is that there would be a woman who would discover that Jesus was able to carry her dirt. And do you know how freeing that is? To truly know in your heart that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Jairus was about to be put in a position. What is he going to do with a message like that? Let's read the text, shall we? Beginning from verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about, how old? Twelve. How many disciples were there? Twelve. How old is his daughter? Hold on to that. Twelve was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. That is a literal translation there. He is literally fighting through the crowds. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for how long? Twelve years. Twelve. Twelve. The significance of this is this is at the heart of the reforming work that God wants to do for his people. That's the significance of this story. It's more than just the healing of a woman and a daughter who's dying. 
This miracle is interwoven together for us to understand that there is a reforming work that God wants to do. And for that reformation to happen, people who have a religious philosophical practice that sidelines those that are hurting need to be aware that Jesus is changing this system up. So she's been bleeding for 12 years. But no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately the bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, and I know that the power has gone out of me. I would love to be able to spend time on this. The relation of the man Jesus to the work of the Spirit through the will of the Father. This is not magic. This just shows us that what Jesus did in his life as a man was empowered by the Spirit of God. Sometimes God works even through us, even when we don't know it. But in this moment, Jesus recognizes it. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he had the, uh, arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. I love this. Do you know what Jairus' name means? God will awaken. God will awaken. <laughs> There's always power in the name, right? God will awaken. Don't worry. She's asleep. What's he doing? Speaking a word straight into Jairus' heart. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished. But he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. And Jairus, the synagogue leader, went, thank God for that, no trouble with my colleagues. This is, a, this is an incredible story. The way it's woven together, if you understand the bigger picture here, Jesus died in order to give people a means of access to God that bypassed all the things that we needed to do and actually is focused simply on what he would do. The message of religion is do, the message of Christianity is done. This, this is the, the heart of the story. But do we truly understand this sociological, this contextual conflict that's going on? Many of us miss it. See, at the heart of this story of Jairus and his attitude to Jesus, representing that religious elite, the leaders of society, is actually complicated by the presence of a woman who we are told has been bleeding for 12 years. She is basically what you would call unclean. 
An unclean woman in this state should not have been that close to a rabbi, firstly, but to a crowd like this, secondly. Leviticus chapter 15 deals with this, and I want you to see two verses in there, Leviticus 15, verse 25, and then verse 27. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, other than her monthly period, how many of you thought you'd be coming to church today and I'd be talking about the woman's time of the month? (laughs) Be warned, it's likely to get a little worse than that. But anyway, um, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period. Now, that's her case, okay? She's been bleeding for how long? 12 years. This applies to her. She will be unclean for as long as she has the discharge. So what is that woman's state? She is unclean. Just as in the days of a period, anyone who touches them or who is touched by them will, what? Also be unclean. And they must, what do they need to do? They must wash their clothes, bathe with water, and they will be unclean until the evening. You're getting the picture, right? The woman has a discharge of blood for 12 years. According to this, the rules that apply to the time of the month apply to her now. She basically should have been segregated and isolated for a week after her period. So even after the bleeding stops, there would be this this isolation that a woman would experience for a period of seven days. But more than that, anyone she touches or who is touched by her is also unclean until the evening. They must bathe, they must wash their clothes, then they are in a position to be considered clean. So Jesus is invited by a synagogue leader who knows the ruckus that is going on by Jesus' behavior and acceptance of unclean people, is now, through the actions of this unclean woman who touched Jesus, put in a position to decide what is more important to me, my philosophical position about people on the outside, or my need for this rabbi who God is working through to heal my daughter. It's truly amazing What happens when someone who has a rigid, fixed philosophical position suddenly is led into a painful experience and that experience causes them to rethink their philosophy? I could mention a number of issues that we tackle, but once you start to experience the pain of this, you rethink your position. This is what's going on in this story. It's a beautiful example of the sovereignty of God being displayed through a so-called disobedient woman. It's truly remarkable. Now, for us, we read Leviticus 15, and let's be honest, doesn't this sound awful? I mean, ladies, thank God you weren't born in Jesus' day, right? I mean, basically, every single month, that time of the month, you'd have to isolate yourself. And what makes this worse is, there is a woman here who through no fault of her own, for 12 years, 
has had to experience this kind of segregation, this kind of isolation. These purity laws, these laws that speak about being clean and unclean, for so many of us are shocking, they are revolting, they are disgusting. We can't get ahead around them. But in reality, I think we've not understood these laws in the way that we should. You see, the purity laws were not about segregation or separation or division. The purity laws dealt with what I'm calling compatibility, not culpability. The purity laws dealt with the incompatibility of the human nature with the holy God. These purity laws were written for both men and women, we're talking about female here, to remind a man and a woman of the frailty of the human nature and of the glorified otherness of the divine. And how these two are not compatible. It's not talking about culpability. Purity laws were not about right and wrong, good and bad, positive and negative, but about the compatibility of the divine to the human. They were reminders to both men and women that our human condition is frail. And in the presence of a holy God, that's a problem. That's the intention. Now remember too that these purity laws were given with regards to approaching, not the temple, but the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting, the place where God dwelt, where God's holiness and all his glory was manifested. These purity laws were written to show the incompatibility of fallen humanity to actually enter into the glorious holiness of God himself. It's about the proximity to holiness. So when we hear the words unclean, we think good, bad, positive, negative. But an ancient Jew wouldn't think like that. An ancient Jew would recognize, wait a minute, this reminds me of the frailty of my human nature, the fallenness of my human nature, and in this state I cannot enter the presence of God. And the question is, what do I need to do to enter into the presence of God in my fallen state? So think about this. The fact is the Bible assumes impurity. The Bible says we were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. We were born that way since Adam. So the Bible assumes impurity. So according to Leviticus, impurity, and you can read this, happens when you consummate a marriage. When you bear a child. And when you bury the dead. And if you're bold enough to say that you're recently married here, <laughs> have you consummated that marriage? I hope you have. And I hope it was good. But the Bible, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible say that consummating a marriage is therefore bad? Does the Bible actually say that bearing a child, which would render you unclean, was bad? 
Does the Bible actually say that burying the dead, which would actually render you unclean, is bad? No. So what are these things? These are reminders based in the unique, natural phenomenon of both a man and a woman and a man and a woman together that remind us that we are fallen and that something needs to happen in order for fallen people to enter into the presence of God. And so a menstruate woman is no more a sinner than a man is righteous. A couple consummating their marriage are not sinners any more than a celibate single is righteous. The solution for being unclean, I hope you get this, is not forgiveness. It's purification. What makes us clean? What makes us right with God? What makes it possible for us to enter into the presence of God? So, ladies, the good news with all of this is that when it's that time of the month, you're not in a bad state. Now, your hormone or your testosterone-rich husband may make you feel like that. But that's not what this is supposed to be. See, the purity laws addressing this female menstrual cycle reminded a woman of her unique femininity, something that was celebrated. It reminded them of their humanity and consequently, on the other hand, in a God-oriented culture, also of the uniqueness and the holiness of God himself. The purity laws were not there to make you feel shame. They were not there to make you feel bad. They were not there for someone to point the finger at you and say there's something evil with you. There's something wrong with you. What they were there to do is to say there's something wrong with all of us, male and female, that God needs to address, that something needs to happen to make it possible for fallen humanity to enter into the presence of God. And the debate that's raging in this story is, what is that? What needs to be done? Now, if you think about it, we live with, don't we? The, we live with the idea of compatibility. It, it's not a strange concept to us. For example, many years ago, we recognized that when we built a home, that you don't place the bathroom next to the dining room. You don't do that. I hope I don't need to flesh out why you don't do that. Is the bathroom wrong? Is there anything wrong with the bathroom? No. We just recognize that putting a bathroom by the side of a dining room, they're not compatible. The two shouldn't mix. In Wales, we express this idea of incompatibility with the phrase, oh, it's just like chalk and cheese. Have you ever heard of that? British phrase. I was going to kind of go out in that one, and I thought, anybody know that? And I asked somebody, and they're like, what are you on about? In Britain, this idea of incompatibility was say, oh, it's like chalk and cheese. When you say that, you just recognize the two objects are just incompatible. You just don't put these two things together. 
We do this with food types, too. Uh, for example, with food, you don't eat lemon, apparently, with cucumber, milk, tomatoes, and yogurt. How many of you do that? <laughs> you know, as I was looking at this, one of it says uh, melon. Melon, you eat it on its own. You don't do that with yogurt. Well, every morning, I kind of do that. It's incompatible. Is it wrong? No, it's just harder for the body's digestive system, apparently, to digest. So, so you, you don't do that. Another one, beans. Beans are apparently incompatible with cheese, eggs, milk, fish, meat, and yogurt. Is there anything wrong with beans? I say yes when your teenage son eats beans before you go on a transatlantic flight, quite honestly. <laughs> but seriously, <laughs> you can't believe I said that, can't you? <clears throat> There's nothing wrong with it. We grow up with the idea that some things are just incompatible. And the point with these purity laws is that they were originally designed to show that a woman in her unique femininity, as much as that is to be celebrated, needs to remember the incompatibility of the fallen female nature with the divine and the glorious nature of God. This is about the proximity to holiness. The same thing applies to a man. That's the way this was supposed to be. But unfortunately, by the time we get to the world of Jesus, things have changed. In Jesus' time, the entire pagan world, in a sense, had actually moved in on the Holy Land. And so believers found themselves in a debate asking themselves, how are we supposed to live right in an unrighteous world? And all of a sudden, they became fixed, focused on what was right and what was wrong, what was good and what was bad, what was positive and what was negative. And the result of that is the development of what I am calling a culpability culture. A culpability culture. That is basically when the controlling mindset, the domineering mindset, in this regard, the religious mindset, assumed an individual's internal consent to their struggles and their actions. In other words, it's your fault. So these purity laws developed away from the idea of incompatibility to the idea of culpability. There's something wrong with you. Jesus, who sinned, this man or his father? Culpability culture. Finger pointing. And the result of that is this woman, okay, who should have been celebrating the fact that God loved her even though she was struggling with this issue, found herself feeling that people were pointing the finger of blame at her when in reality she had done everything she knew to do to find a way to clean this up. Culpability culture. And this culpability culture is seen in a number of different ways. For example, I'll just give you two. One example of this is that failure to heed the laws concerning menstruation, okay, was thought to be one of the three sins for which a woman dies at childbirth. That's not what Leviticus said. But all of a sudden, you can see this. 
This woman's struggling with the flow of blood and she hears these kind of exegesis come along. More than that, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that during menstruation, women were not permitted in not just the temple, but any of the courts of the temple. Now the Gentiles could go in because the Gentile was obviously cleaner than a woman. How ridiculous is that? And so you have this culture, this, this blame culture coming where, where the religious people were kind of pointing the finger and it was making people like this woman feel guilty, shame-filled. So, the scriptures assume impurity, but this woman was made to feel dirty in second class. She was battling a condition that didn't kill her, but this culpability culture was killing the hope and the life inside of her. She connected with the God of history, but she just couldn't connect that God with the God in a story. Because until she cleaned herself up, you see, she wasn't able to enter into God's presence. Are you seeing this? Now, from Mark 5.26, we can say that this is a believing woman. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. She had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she only grew worse. And in the Mark story, we can say that she was not only faithful in trying to get rid of this bleeding, but also that she was a woman of faith. In Mark, we read that the woman said, if only I can touch the edge of his garment. Why would she do that? Because in Malachi chapter four and verse two, it said he is risen with healing in his wings. That word wings means edges. It refers to the edges of his garment. Jesus stops and says, who did this? Because somebody has acted out on Malachi four verse two in faith, believing that if I only touch the edge of his wings, the edge of his garment, then I will be healed. Jesus stops. This was a believing woman. She knew the scriptures and yet this religious community rather than celebrating her, were pointing the finger at her and say, clean yourself up, stop this. Can you imagine what it's like to be in a religious community, to believe in God, but have to suffer in silence because the religious community considers you culpable and consequently unfit for worship, discipleship and fellowship? Can you imagine what that's like? I'd like to tell you that things like this only happened in Jesus' day, but the reality is I can't. We may not act on a culpability culture, but the failure to connect the Jesus who not only bears our sin but carries our shame to the experience of so many people who are battling the frailty of their human condition makes them feel this way. What I want to do right now is introduce you to a God-fearing woman who has battled this sense of shame, this sense of a second-class status as a result of the frailty of her own human condition. One of the most compassionate, God-fearing people that I've ever met. And with that, Vipka, would you like to join me on the stage? I just want to get Vipka to share a part of her story with you about how real this issue is in the experience of so many people and probably so many people in this place. How easy it is for us to 
proclaim a message. We've sung it in three of our songs of a, of a Jesus who can bear the weight of our sin, can actually carry our sin, and yet there is often the disconnect with the Jesus who not only carries our sin, but, an, but can also carry our shame. Vicar, we just heard about that, uh, that woman, and there's so much in that woman's story that I'm sure you can uh, share in yours. Just share with everybody a little bit of the story and how, your story and how that connects. Yeah, thank you. Um, I developed anorexia as a young teenager and spent one summer in a hospital for treatment initially, and that did not do any good, so I was moved to a special clinic for almost one year for treatment for my eating disorder, sent away from home. And I returned home, I was just, I just turned 15 at the time, and everybody thought I was healed because I was at a healthy weight at the time. That, that same summer, I actually accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior through a family I met in the United States. And in my mind, that was the ticket to living a happy and healthy life and leaving everything behind. But however, I had not really ever dealt with the issues that caused my addiction and my problems in the first place. And so it turned to other things. And, and I've learned that over the years that a lot of people do that. They start with one addiction and then switch to others. That's actually pretty common. And that was the same for me. To medicate the pain that was still there, I, I turned to other things like bulimia, like self-harm when the pain was really strong inside. And that's actually something a lot of teenagers use as well. And probably worst of all was I got really depressed. And I think we use that term so lightly. I'm depressed that it's going to rain later. That's not depression, I'm sorry. <laughs> and depression is horrible. It just takes, zaps every, in, every ounce of energy. Is that an ounce of energy? <laughs> um, just getting out of bed is hard. Um, simple tasks seem overwhelming. And, and for me, that depression got to the point where sometimes I just wanted to end it all. And just by the grace of God, that did not happen. And so looking back, I just think there were clear warning signs that everybody should have seen. But I think my entire family was just in denial that I still had issues. And I was in denial about it too. I mean, like one example is my weight was always going like this, sometimes 30 to 40 pounds up, up and down and in a short period of time. Another clear indicator that things were not all right with me uh, was I was previously a really great student and I was in a school for gifted kids and because of the depression and just really not caring anymore, I, I stopped working at school, I skipped classes and then I ended up failing classes. So two years after leaving the hospital, um, probably one of my most shameful moments was that my parents had to take me to the principal's office and he asked me to leave school without a high school diploma. I will never forget that look of disappointment and just horror my parents faced because they didn't realize how bad things had gotten. That was depression. And so the other thing was I was the first believer in my family and I was on a mission to show them the hope and life that Jesus gives us and offers us but I didn't really experience that in my, own, in my own story, in my own life. And um, so I can relate to the woman in the story. I just, I just felt I carried a sense of guilt and shame with me all the time. I felt like I was a second class Christian and like I was one of those people that didn't really fit in into church society. 
And I knew without a doubt that I was powerless to live that life that I so desperately wanted to live, but my life was so unmanageable. So we get married. And in those early years, I remember thinking to myself, God, help me, help me work this out. Here I am coming from a really messed up family. And if you've ever heard part of my story here, you'll understand what I'm saying. And I was saying to God, here I am coming from this messed up family, and I'm fine. I'm fine, you know. <laughs> and there, there you are coming from, this, coming from this, you know, really great background, and you're just so messed up. <laughs> and you see, what I, what I was doing in that moment was actually living out this culpability culture in my own life. Because I had the view of Jesus who saved people from sin. But the type of Jesus who carried, entered into people's day-to-day -day suffering and helped them with their shame was not the Jesus that, that I actually understood. It took me a long time to realize this. And many times I would just say to you, why didn't you just stop? Why didn't you just stop? I mean, really, because I couldn't. I was powerless to stop. And you know, one of the things I feel passionate about is that I didn't mean to like live a double life because often it felt like that. I felt like inside I carried that pain. I had depression. I, I struggled. But on the outside, I looked as Dutch clean as most of you do. So nobody would have known, right? So that was not my intention to be decisive, de de deceiving anyone. And did I believe that Jesus could heal me? Yes, I did. I believed it in my head and I believed it in my heart but it wasn't reality, and sometimes I would have prayer for things, but the one prayer just didn't fix it. Believe me, I tried it, didn't do it alone. And so I believed it, but I didn't experience the healing. So I think looking back, what was really missing was being in a community where I felt it was okay to, to share each other's burdens and to, to be in community with people that, that I could be open about certain things. Not with everybody, but with certain safe people. And I think in that culture, I just, I didn't experience it. Like you said, it was like we could go to God with our sin, but not with our shame and with our struggles. Um, while we were, uh, while we were engaged, um, we, I remember meeting up with a great pastor friend of mine, and uh, I was telling him about Vipkin, and I was so pumped and excited, and, and then I shared with him uh, Vipkin's story. And as I shared with him Vipkin's story, he, up until that point, he looked at me and he said, Craig, what are you doing? And I looked at him and I said, what do you mean? And he said, you do realize she will never be free of this. You do realize that this will follow her, her entire life. God has a call on yours. Don't marry her. I tell that story because Vipka said I should tell that story. <laughs> I remember in that moment thinking two things. The first thing I thought was, he's a pastor and he's saying that? And secondly, what if he's right? <laughs> In those early years, honestly, I thought he was right because we hadn't learned what it meant. 
for me to change this culpability attitude that I was just having with this. And we hadn't learned what it truly meant to actually give Jesus our shame, to do nothing more other than to realize that in Jesus there is someone who actually can fix us up. We don't have to fix ourselves and then go to Jesus. And it seems as though when we got to that point, there was really a shift. Just as we begin to wrap this up, share a little bit words of encouragement, words of, uh, of truth into that part of our story. What I would really just like you to take away from, 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 this, from this part is just that I know that God can heal us. He has done that for me, not overnight, and it's been, a, it's been a journey, but he is the only one that really can. I believe that with all my heart, and I don't know who is in here this morning and what you are carrying in here this morning, but I hope you hear that, that there is hope. It's not just words. This is reality, and it can be a reality for you. Craig said earlier that we have just been here two years, and many people have come to me over the time and said, oh, I Googled you, and I looked up his sermons, and checked you out and all that. But you know what, we did that too. Yeah, we checked you out as well. <laughs> and, and, and we watched <coughs> sermons too, and, and I, I was so thrilled. And I think I fell in love when I found um, a sermon series called Getting Real at the beginning of 2014. Watched each and every one of them, and if you haven't done it, please go home and do so. And that's when I really fell in love with the people of Central. Just the leadership and, and the church just wanting to be real. You know, not again, there's, there's appropriate and inappropriate ways of doing things, but just to, to, to have that message, it's okay to bring your shame, your struggles, whatever that looks like, and, and to journey together. And, and we're not judging you. We, we, we want to be real, and we want to be authentic in our walk. And I know that's what we want to move forward with, with with this church, and there's great programs already up, and that, that would be really helpful in, in many regards, like Grief Share, Divorce Care, the Apprentice Series, just for a deeper walk with God, and, it, and also Celebrate Recovery that we're kicking off in just three weeks. We're super excited, and I know often people come to the table at the back and they say, is it just for people with drugs and alcohol? No, it's not. Um, I'm still working my journey and you know, some of the issues, if you, if you want to know, what, what, what am I working with? Like, it's actually the same root issues that caused the dysfunction in the past. What are they? Some of them are like control, wanting to be in control. I'm really not in control of much. Perfectionism, just that tendency to independence, codependency, those kind of things. And yes, they, they're not destructive like they used to be, but they're everyday things that, that I'm dealing with with those, whether that's children leaving the home or new children entering the home or relationships, codependency. It's, so I'm discovering more and more layers and I'm working them with other women that I can trust and be in, in relationship with. So Celebrate Recovery is for everyone and I want to encourage you to check it out um, and be part of it. It's not just for those people. I'm not ashamed anymore to say I am one of those people. I have struggled greatly, but... Um, God has used that at the end of the day, and I want to encourage you to, to be a part of it and, and embrace people that, that maybe need you on their journey. Amen. Can we say thank you to Vivka for <clears throat> being vulnerable? So while God was healing Vipka from the inside out, God was also healing me, purging me of this culpability attitude 
that I didn't know I had, but I did. And this is the remarkable thing when the story gets to the, when the, story gets to the end. I love this part in, in Mark 5. The, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, this is in Luke as well, by the way, I don't know why I put the mark when up here, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all of the people, she told why she had touched him, and now she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Please notice what had happened. There is a leader of a religious synagogue here, Jairus, who had this culpability attitude, just like I did. And Jesus feels this touch, realizes it's an act of faith on the basis of Malachi 4 and verse 2 and says, who touched me? The disciples say, Jesus, are you crazy? Look at this, we're getting crushed. And he said, I'm telling you, somebody needs to testify here. Why does this woman need to speak up? Why do we ever need to speak up and voice those things that we've struggled with, those things that we felt shamed by? One of the reasons is as an encouragement to us about what God has done. Secondly, as an encouragement to the people around for what God can do. But thirdly, and in this context, here is Jairus frustrated because Jesus is delaying going to his daughter, now torn because this woman's confession puts him in a position to have to make a decision, am I going to hold to my philosophy that he is unclean? Or am I going to allow an unclean rabbi to come and minister to my daughter? Am I going to allow my philosophy to change? And this is the... This is the remarkable thing with this. And the remarkable part of this is that Jairus in that moment, as he's wrestling this through, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? He hears a voice coming to him saying, Jairus, don't bother the rabbi anymore. Your daughter's dead. Imagine how he feels in that moment. But then Jesus turns to Jairus and says, Jairus, don't worry. If you believe, it'll all go well. And Jairus allows Jesus to go with him. One of the reasons for that is Jairus knows that he is about to become unclean himself. Jesus removes that obstacle. Why is he about to become unclean? Because he's about to touch a dead body. He's going to enter into this unclean state. And so Jesus in this moment kind of makes it slightly easier for Jairus by, by allowing the girl to pass because now Jairus doesn't have to worry about the unclean issue. And Jesus, we know the story, Jesus goes to Jairus, goes to the home, and the daughter is raised. Now we aren't told whether Jesus sends her away for seven days to prove her cleanliness, but that's really not the point. The issue at stake isn't clean versus unclean. It's not good versus bad. It's not right versus wrong. But who or what makes you right with God? And the answer of the Bible is Jesus. Some of you probably come in here today and you're looking at the words on the, on, the, on the fence over the last couple of weeks and you can't look there because that's the way you feel. A sense of shame. Some of you may not be struggling with those words, but there are other issues in your life and you struggle with those. And you feel that you need to do something in order to clean yourself up. But the message of the gospel is not just that Jesus bears our sin. The message of the gospel is that Jesus also 
carries our dirt. Jesus makes us clean. Jesus breaks every chain. And the good news is that Jesus has not only done that for Vipka, he's not only done that for me by purging me of attitudes and hurts and habits that just drive my actions, he's done it for many people too. And we want you to rest in that truth, that if you're in here today carrying that sense of shame, Jesus carried it as well. And we want you to, to meditate on the truth of these words as the team just sing a song about Jesus being able to break those chains of addiction, those hurts, those habits, the brokenness. And as that song is sung, there are gonna be testimonies that you're gonna see from other people as this song goes that will just reveal to you that Jesus not only bears our sin, church, Jesus carries our shame. We never need feel dirty or second class again. Jesus makes us whole. Ponder that, celebrate that as this song is played. That's one of those songs we can just keep singing and singing, isn't it? Especially when we realize that the frailty of our human condition that often will lead us into actions, holding on to hurts, habits and hangups that we really should let go of. It's in Christ and through touching Christ that we can let them go. When you truly understand that, when you close the gap between a Jesus who not only bears our sin, but ultimately carries that frailty in his own body, it truly does set you free. And as we leave here today, if we've touched on issues that you know you need prayer for, then at the front at the end, there will be people who will be here to pray for you. Please don't leave without doing something decisive with this. If you need more privacy, you can go out of the church, out of the auditorium here, and just to the right, and there is a prayer room there. But I pray that this week and every single day of your life, you will realize Jesus not only bears your sin, he actually carries the frailty of your human condition. He carries your dirt and he carries your shame. So people of God go from this place knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. Go in grace, go in peace, and may God go with you. See you next week.